Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. And so I'm thankful that my friend Chris Mathis is here to teach this weekend. Um, But Chris has been with us before and his wife Jackie, and they've got four wonderful girls. So I'm thankful that you get to meet him yet again, and so thankful that he is going to teach us from God's Word. So why don't you welcome my friend Chris. Well, church, it's a joy to be here. Uh, It's neat to see what the Lord is doing uh, with the congregation here. And uh, if you'd like, why don't you get your Bible out and let's open it to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Trevor has been an an absolute blessing in my life for uh, a long time. We've known each other since we were teenagers. Uh, Something that really stands out to me about your pastor is you have a genuine pastor. Trevor loves people. Trevor uh, loves to reach out and spend one-on-one time and Uh, It's an absolute blessing to hear him uh, in that chaplain program and how God is using him. And uh, you should continue to pray for him and his family. It really is a a calling, and I can see the work of his heart of a pastor and a shepherd here this morning as I see all of you. It's an absolute delight to see God's faithfulness. Uh, We are in 2 Samuel chapter 9. You may notice my voice is a little funny, so I don't know if I finally am hitting puberty, which may be happening. So if there's any teenagers in here, hang in there. I understand. Uh, So if it cracks, you can just laugh at me. That's okay. If it uh, disappears, we'll see what happens. But we're in 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you'd like to take notes, you might want to make a note of the title of the message, A Friendly Reminder. A Friendly Reminder. Uh, Here we go, church. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, it says, Now David said in verse 1, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Emil, in Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him out of the house of Maker, the son of Emil, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself, and then David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, that, uh, what is your servant that I, or that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul in all his house. 
You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, and then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Zeba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Would you bow for a moment of prayer? Father, we come before you right now, and we thank you. For all that you have done for us, we thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus. You gave your only begotten son that we, as lost people, could be found. That we, as a people dead in our sins, could be forgiven. That we could walk in newness of life. And so we ask right now for this time in your word that you, Lord, would do a work in our gathering, that you would take your word and that you, Father, would bring it alive and do a work by your spirit in our hearts and our lives, that we would be better followers of Jesus and that our love for you would deepen. And so minister to us now, be glorified and honored through the preaching and teaching of your word, and may we lift your son up and may the affections of our heart be stirred. We would worship you with a greater passion in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. A friendly reminder. There are these moments when you go out to the mail and you pull the mail out and you might begin to look through it and you see junk mail, junk mail, junk mail, bill, bill, and then a little postcard. And a little postcard says something like, just a friendly little reminder from your beloved dentist. It's that time again, right? You're like, I don't know if I'm in the friendly kind of place with my dentist, but you see it, a reminder of your cleaning that you made six months ago because you were free six months ago, right? You may have that moment where you open up your email and you have a little reminder that your internet security is going to expire in 14 days. Friendly little reminder, renew now before China and Russia get all your personal information. Right, you have that moment when it comes to a bill, maybe a little friendly little reminder that your bill is past due and you're going, I thought it was on auto payment. But then you remembered at some gas station, your credit card number got stolen and somebody went to the local vape shop and bought a bunch of stuff on your credit card and you need to update the account. We have these little friendly reminders that come to us, and King David has this moment in his life of of a friendly little reminder, a reminder of a promise that he made to a friend whom he loved and cared for, a reminder that he had experienced this kindness of God and his need to reciprocate or show that kindness that he had promised years ago. You see, in the Scripture, in the Old Testament, there's this this Hebrew word that they've struggled to kind of translate. The the word is hesed. It it means this, or one of the, the definitions that is used, it means when a person whom I have the right to expect nothing gives me everything. Think about that. When When a person who has the right to nothing 
should expect nothing, but is given everything. That's kind of the concept of that Hebrew word. Well, it was Miles Coverdale in his 1535 translation of the scripture, he coined an entirely new word to try to capture that hesed, and he coined the new word loving kindness. You might even see in the scripture that loving kindness is translated as mercy. It, it shows up some 250 times in the Old Testament. And while it's a difficult word to translate or to define, it, it's much better to illustrate. So keep that in mind. When somebody who, who should expect nothing, who has the right to expect nothing but is given everything, let me illustrate it for you. There's a ministry in Africa by the name or by the uh, name Edunation. It's led by a man by the name of Samuel Cisse. The focus of this ministry is to build homes or to build schools for uh, villages in West Africa to try to uh, set up an education system. Well, Samuel Cisse and his Edunation's ministry was present in West Africa when the Ebola outbreak broke out. Well, when the Ebola outbreak broke out, they had learned something in the area that shifted their ministry from building schools to helping families. When somebody was exposed to Ebola, it meant a three-week quarantine for the family. Reports were beginning to come in that many of these families did not have three weeks worth of food or supplies to survive that the government was unable to help. And so the, the news was spreading that families that were in quarantine and isolated for the 21 days were running out of food and starving. Well, Samuel quickly began to minister and reach out to these families and bring them food to try to keep them alive and to support them. But during this time, a man by the name of John who had worked in the ministry had to be let go. Samuel had found out that some reports of misappropriation were true, and he let the employee go from the ministry. And when John was released from his duties, his response was not the best. He instantly left, and he went to the local witch doctor and hired the witch doctor to pronounce a death curse on Samuel for firing him. Later, one of John's family members was exposed or played with a child whose parent had Ebola, which meant instantly his family was quarantined for 21 days. Here's the thing, the entire family, the entire household of 23 people were isolated in the house, and Samuel went into action, and he and his ministry delivered food to John and his entire family for 21 days and not a single one of them died. At the end of it, John was ready to break through the tape or the isolation barrier to declare how ministered and how reached he was by Samuel's loving kindness. He expected nothing, deserved nothing, but what happened? He got everything. You see, David is here in this moment where he has experienced like a great tidal wave the loving kindness of God, and it's a friendly reminder to him to show it to somebody else. If you have your Bible, you could go and, and go back to chapter 7, and chapter 7 is a very important chapter because it's in chapter 7 that God makes a covenant with David. 
God shows David his loving kindness, and he promises David that David's house, David's kingdom, and David's throne would be established forever, like a sandlot forever, forever. But in the psalm, in Psalm 89, in verse 1 through 3, this covenant promise that God made, the psalmist, it's described as a sign of God's loving kindness. Because of God's goodness and loving kindness towards David, his house, his kingdom, his throne would be established forever. If you look in chapter 8, you see that chapter 8, that loving kindness continues. God is fulfilling his promise. If you were to peruse through chapter 8, you find the, the phrase, and David defeated, and David also defeated, and David conquered. You see David's kingdom and throne and house being established. Every enemy of David is being destroyed. It comes to a moment in chapter 8 and verse 6. It says, so, so the Lord preserved David wherever he went. You see in chapter 8 and verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. So you have God promise this loving kindness. Verse 8 or chapter 8, you begin to see God establish in his loving kindness David's kingdom and David's throne and David's family, defeat after defeat after defeat, conquer after conquer after conquer. And David finally comes to this moment while he is sopping wet in the wave of God's loving kindness, and we come to verse 3, and it says, Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Remember chapter 7, the kindness of God to David. I'm going to establish your kingdom, your throne, your house forever. Chapter 8, David is walking in that. His enemies are defeated and conquered. It's this wonderful little picture in verse 3. It's a picture of a young child who has jumped in the pool at summertime and is sopping wet and comes out of that pool and water is just sheeting off them and they see an uncle who is dry or an aunt who is dry and runs up to that aunt and runs up to that uncle and just hugs their side. And the aunt and the was like, ooh, I love you. But then the aunt and uncle has their shirt clinging to their side for the rest of the afternoon because they're, they got wet by the child. David is sopping wet in the loving kindness of God. And he's going, I want to share this. And notice in verse 3, he wants to share it with someone from the house of Saul. For Jonathan's sake, in verse 1, what I'd like to show you as a friendly reminder that if you have experienced the loving kindness of God, may you be ready to show that loving kindness to others. And in chapter 9, we have three indicators of loving kindness. We'll look at each one of them. The first indicator of this kindness is a kindness to reassure. A kindness to reassure. The second indicator is a kindness to restore, a kindness to restore. And the third indicator is a kindness to receive, a kindness to receive. This loving kindness makes all the difference. Notice in verse 1, it's very important you see how this reads. 
is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul? Now, do me a favor. Let's imagine, what would you think if verse 1 stopped with Saul? Remember chapter 8? All of David's enemies were conquered and defeated, right? Now look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul? If it ended there, what would you think David's intentions were? David was a, was a mean man, or Saul was a mean man to David, was he not? But look at what happened. He experienced the loving kindness of God. And he was reminded of his promise of loving kindness to Jonathan. And that loving kindness changes the whole context. Is there anybody of the house of Saul left that I may show him what? Kindness for Jonathan's sake. Jonathan was his beloved friend whom in 1 Samuel chapter 20, they made a promise before the Lord that they would show loving kindness to one another that they would show the love of God to one another, that no matter whether they were alive or dead, they would show this hesed, this care. They would, they would give everything to another who would expect nothing. And you find that begin to work out because David has been overwhelmed by the wave of God's loving kindness. And it comes in here in chapter 9 as we work through this, you see that the main character of this episode in David's life is not David. Chapter 9, the main character isn't David himself. It's a man by the name of Mephibosheth. And if you look very carefully, Mephibosheth isn't even named until verse 6. You get all this information about him before you even get his name. And all the information you get is that he is a man who is expected nothing, who has the right to receive nothing. Look at how it comes out. Though he's not mentioned till verse 6, you see all of these things about him, and you see first that he's defined as one who is lame in his feet. Ephibosheth and all the descriptions that kind of go throughout Scripture, him first showing up in 2 Samuel chapter 4, it's described that he fell and became lame. In our text, if you look at verse 3, there's still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. You look at verse 13 of the text, and he was lame in both his what, church? Feet. If you were to go ahead into chapter 19 and verse 24 and 26, you see two more reminders that he is lame in his feet. You have Mephibosheth, a man who expects the right of nothing. He, he's described, you want to know the first thing about him, he's described as one who is lame. One who cannot walk, one who has been disabled, one who has been in that context uh, kind of disqualified for being the king of the nation. And it all happened in this tragic moment in his life. You find in 2 Samuel chapter 4, the day that, that Mephibosheth became lame, the reports had come in that his dad, Jonathan, had died in battle. That his grandfather, King Saul, had died in battle. And it says that he has a five-year-old boy being led away by his nurse in fear fell and became lame in both his feet. Think for a minute of Mephibosheth. This disability, this accident has begun over the years to define his life. 
There are in church today those that understand what it is to live with disability, what it is to live with chronic illness. And you may relate a little bit to a Mephibosheth. You, you understand what it is to be defined by your disability. Every morning when you wake up, you're reminded of things you can't do anymore. You have that moment where your mind has one intention, but your body tells you not going to happen. You know the chronic pain and the chronic frustration. When you look at Mephibosheth, you've got to see that he had the right to nothing. He's lame. To put it this way, the day that Mephibosheth walked through the valley of the shadow of death was the last day he walked. His feet reminded him of the day he heard as a five-year-old boy, Daddy's not coming home. It was the day that he learned that his beloved grandpa was no longer on the throne. And each passing day, those lame feet reminded him of it. There's this reminder to you and I throughout Scripture that, that we need God's loving kindness because we are lame in our sin. We are dead in our sin and trespasses. But Mephibosheth is not just lame. You see also that he's in exile. You find in verse 4 and 5, to show you that he really has the right to nothing, he, he lives out in verse 4 in this place called Lodabar. He lives, the text lets us know, in the house of a man by the name of Maker under his care. He has gone so far out onto the fringe of civilization, living in hiding in another man's home who is taking care of him because he is lame. Look at this, his exile. He's in this place called Lodabar. Lodabar is translated in Scripture as, as no pasture land. It's trackless and barren. It's on the fringe of civilization. It would be in the east of the Jordan River on the border of Gad. It's that place where people go to disappear. If you've ever been driving maybe to a destination and you have to drive through a place of, of just desert or a place where there's nothing around and off in the distance you see like an old abandoned mobile home that was there and you're like, wonder what the story is behind that place. It's where people go to hide. Lodabar is a place where you don't want to be found. You may have even heard Trevor talk about us coming from the high desert, and you're like, where's that? It's like a Lodabar of California. Actually, not so much. You know, hey, we have some gas stations and grocery stores. Look at what else you see about Mephibosheth. He's dependent on others. He can't live for himself, take care of himself. He's in Maker's home. Can you think of the fear of Mephibosheth? He can't run. At this moment, he can no longer hide. And you see in the text that David calls for him in verse 5. Will you contrast the two? You have David, the great warrior king. You have David who has conquered all. You have David who's sitting on an established throne whom God has put his approval upon. You have David in whom the people sing of his accomplishments. You have David in his royal robe, in the fragrance of his kingship. And then here comes in this lame, crippled grandson of his enemy, Mephibosheth. And he melts like butter on a frying pan in the palace of David. 
But you come here and you see verse 6, David looks at him and calls him Mephibosheth. In other words, he looks at him and he's like, Mephibosheth, you have your dad's nose and your grandpa's forehead. I know who you are. And here's where the kindness begins. It's first a kindness to reassure. Do you see what David says? So verse 7, David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. You think about how fearful Mephibosheth was as he's brought out of exile, as he sees the trail of dust from the king's men that are coming to get him. He's loaded on one of the king's animals, brought in the palace, brought before David. And what's the first thing David does in his kindness? He tells him, do not be afraid. He wants to reassure a man who has been found. He wants to reassure a man who cannot escape. He wants to reassure a man who knows that he is to expect nothing because he comes from the previous dynasty or the previous king. Look at these reassuring words. It's reassuring words spoken in moments of panic and fear. They are words of truth when panic comes from uncertainty. They're words of love when fear is deceiving the heart. I want you to consider those moments when you may have the upper hand. Do you like to play around with a person's emotions? Like a cat with a mouse. The cat and mouse games aren't the marks of a believer. You see reassurance to not fear. Fear's a real thing for us in this world. Every year they release a new top 10 fears in America, and it's been interesting to see over the decades how they've kind of changed based on what we're going through. One of the, the years just recently, the top 10 fears were loved ones dying, loved ones becoming seriously ill, mass shootings, high medical bills, worldwide civil unrest. You can think about how real that is for what we've gone through over the last five years or so. This fear is real. But you see Mephibosheth, whose very life was marked by fear. Remember when he became lame, it's because he fled in fear. But look at the reassuring words of David. Do not fear. How do I reassure in loving kindness? You are quick to extinguish fear. Verse 7, look at it. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. It's a command and a mark that runs throughout Scripture. There's the angels when they appeared to the shepherds to proclaim the birth of Jesus. And what do they say to all these shepherds in the field? Do not be afraid. The young teenage virgin Mary who was going to hear, you're going to give birth to the Messiah when the angels came to Mary. Do you know what they said? Do not be afraid, Mary. When Jesus in the book of Revelation comes before John and John falls to his feet as if he were dead, Jesus says to John, do not be afraid. The Bible says perfect love casts out fear. And notice what David says, do not be afraid. But we've got to think about this for a minute. This is extinguishing a fear, this loving kindness to reassure. David said, do not be afraid. But David was actually able to do something about it. Like, it wasn't just like, hey, don't be afraid. 
but David had the power to reassure him. I, I look at it this way. There's moments that come in our lives where the body begins to break down, and one of the common procedures that happens as the decades pass is we now as a society and our technological advancements, if your hip is bothering you, we just give you a new one. But that's a pretty extreme operation. So let's imagine for a moment that your hip has begun to ache and you find out that you need a hip replacement. And so you do something that you should never do. You go on YouTube and you Google or YouTube a video about a hip replacement. And you see in the operating room that the operating room is actually sponsored by the power tool company, Makita. You see sawzalls and drills and you're like, what are they doing? and you're scheduled for your hip replacement. Well, let's imagine, and I know this probably wouldn't happen, but for some odd reason, you can't get somebody to take you to your appointment. It's too early, some weird thing, they can't take you, and so you do what we, we do. You go on and you schedule a Lyft or an Uber pickup. And so bright and early in the morning before the sun even comes up, here comes pulling your driveway, that 2015 silver Honda Accord, and you know that's your driver because they told you he was coming in it, and you get into the back seat, and they begin to pull off, and the, the Lyft driver kind of says, hey, I noticed we're going to the hospital here. Are you okay? He maybe even sees there's a little nerve, a little fear, because you YouTubed the procedure. You tell them with a little crack in your voice, well, you know what? I'm going to have a hip replacement today. Your Lyft driver says, ooh, I watched that on YouTube one time. <laughs> Do you know they use Makita power tools? I'm like, gee, that doesn't help. But he pulls up into the drop-off for the hospital. You get out and begin to make your way in, and he rolls down the window of that silver Honda, and he says, hey, 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 come here. You go over to the door, and he says, hey, don't be afraid. It's going to be good. You might say, you're just going to go pick up another person. Now, let's put it in this way. You sit down with your doctor who's going to do the procedure, and he says, hey, don't be afraid. Let me tell you, I went and learned the procedure for hip replacement from the university and the hospital that pioneered it. I know personally the man or the team that invented the procedure. And every year in the month of May, I go to a seminar for the updates on the procedure for the cutting technology. I have done at this point in my career thousands of these replacements, and I have not had any issue. All of my patients are glad they did it. I'm experienced, and he looks at you and he says, do not be afraid. Which one's going to reassure you? Do you see when King David comes and says, do not be afraid, he quickly reassures and extinguishes fear because he can do something about it. The reassuring to quickly extinguish fear is also followed by of a reassuring to reveal your motives. Look at the text. You find in verse 1, verse 3, and in verse 7, that from David's own mouth, he says, his desire is to show kindness. He's desiring to give to Mephibosheth in his lame, exiled, miserable condition, everything. Because of his father, 
because of his promises, I want to show you. Mephibosheth, I am sopping wet in the loving kindness of the wave of God that has crashed in my life. I, I want to share it with you. He does not hide his motives. Think of the great love that the Lord has shown upon us, that he has revealed that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, for you and me. That the intentions and the desire of, of the king of all the universe is to show you kindness. Here, Mephibosheth is reassured, and you see in verse 8 the results. He continues to melt like butter in a hot pan on the palace floor, and he says, why should you look at me, a dead dog, as I? Now, they look at dogs a little bit different at this time in the world than, than we do. They did not put their dogs in strollers and push them around. They did not take their dog to the store with them and talk to them like children. What do you want to eat? What do you want to eat? They could care less about them. And you even see the extent there's nothing worse than even a dead dog. Mephibosheth is blown away by this kindness. I'd ask you this morning, are you letting someone sit in fear when you could help alleviate that? Is there somebody in your life that has deeply hurt you and you're hiding your intentions for them because you want them to squirm? Is your life marked by a quick response of love to those who are in fear? first indicator is a kindness to reassure. Look at the second indicator. It's a kindness to restore. You come and you see in verse 7, it picks up. David says, do not be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Mephibosheth lost everything in a day. Dad, grandpa, the future of the kingdom, his property, his family, he has lived out. Listen, Mephibosheth's entire life had been marked by loss, the loss of his father, the loss of his mobility, the loss of his independence, the loss of his property, the loss of his future and his hopes and his dreams. But notice what David does in loving kindness in verse 7. He says, today we restore. Today we restore. In other words, David is saying, today the clock of loss begins to tick backwards. We're turning it back. And instantly in this moment, look at what David does. He restores all of the property of Saul's family, the property that had been in the family for decades, the property that had given the family a name and established them within the community, the property that gave them a voice amongst the people. It had all been lost, and he lives out in a place of no pasture land. But notice what you find in verse 7. That day in loving kindness, all the pasture land was restored to him. David comes and think about it. He is the king. He can restore all of Saul's property to David. And it really is next to nothing to David to lose that or to give that or to do that. But that loving kindness, though it may seem so minuscule to David, it radically changes Mephibosheth's life. And if you look within the text, you see in verse 12 a little insight that Mephibosheth had a son. And if you follow through this restoring act, you would stumble across 1 Chronicles chapter 8 and verse 34 through 40, and you see something David's loving kindness to restore ends up securing the line of, of Saul for generations. 
This restoration of Saul's property, Mephibosheth, you will see that Saul's line goes on to flourish from generation. It's not just for Mephibosheth, but Mephibosheth's son, his grandchildren, his grandchildren's grandchildren, his grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren. Because he did what? He showed the loving kindness that he experienced from God. This kindness to restore what is lost, all the pasture land. But if you look carefully, you've got to understand this restoration work. He didn't just give the land back, but you find in 9 through 10, it's a kindness to restore function. Do you see this servant of Saul, Ziba? He is put in control over the master's land, and he tills it, he plants it, he harvests it. And so Mephibosheth not only had all the pasture land back, but it was functioning. What's a man with lame feet who can't even walk, who can't even get around? How is he going to maintain the estate of his grandfather? But what does David do? He restores it to function. I think of it this way. You see those moments, and it comes up. Matter of fact, I even saw some articles just this last week. You know, we have this lottery that gets to this exorbitant amount of money, right? Like near a billion-dollar lottery. And, And then you hear something about the... Articles, if you win the billion dollars and you take the lump sum payout, you find out all the millions you pay in taxes, right? Like there's some, if you win, if you are given back something, if you win something in a sweepstakes, you win a brand new car, you're like, ah, but then there's this day that's usually in April that comes around. And old Uncle Sam reminds you he's that family member you don't quite like. And the government wants theirs. Notice what David does. I give it back, and in a sense, I'm paying the taxes. It's going to produce. You know, for you and I, how do we show such a kindness to restore? God has called you and I in the New Testament to a ministry of reconciliation. The Apostle Paul lets us know how we express this loving kindness to restore. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 19, it says, For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Like we have this wonderful message because of the loving kindness of God to bring us into relationship with him, to restore our place with him. We go out and plead, come back to God. Do you know his loving kindness? Let me give you one of these sopping wet hugs that you might know that God can reassure you that your sins are forgiven, that God can restore you though you're far off from him, though you're dead in your sins, though you're lost in your sins. He brings you back into the family of God and restores what is lost. Come back to God. You see this third wonderful indicator of kindness. It's the kindness to receive. If you look at the text, notice there's a kind of a theme that flows through it. Maybe even when we read the whole chapter, you picked it up. In verse 7, look at the last sentence of the verse. Mephibosheth, and you shall eat at my table. How often, church? Continually. Go to verse 10. See in the verse, in verse 10, David says again, but Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread 
at my table always. Go to verse 11. The last verse of verse 11, or the last verse of verse 11, the last sentence, the last little part of the last sentence of verse 11, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. That's not enough. Look at verse 13. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate how often? Continually, always at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Look, if you would, please, in those verses that you see the kindness, the third indicator, it's a kindness to receive. You have this radical change. He's no longer in hiding, but in prominence. He eats at the king's table. He's no longer destitute in low debar, no pasture land. He's been restored. He has the pasture land of his father, his grandfather. He's no longer forgotten, but he's well respected. He eats at the king's table every single night. He's no longer rejected. In Maker's house, fleeing for his life as a five-year-old, but he's received. You hear in verse 7, 10, 11, and 13, you can hear the new chair sliding on the stone floor of the palace as it's being pulled up to the king's table. To eat at the king's table was a special privilege. It signified that that the king is showing favor upon this person. It's at the king's table that business is uh, discussed. It's at the king's table that you get private moments with the leader. It's at the king's table that you eat what the king eats. And you see here this kindness to receive. Notice that it welcomes continually. I love it. You've got to notice in 7, 10, and 13, those verses, that this dinner is not a one-time dinner that this is an every night dinner, that it's continually, always is there a seat set, always is there a meal for him at the king's table. It's not a one-time dinner for, for pictures and memories. In other words, Mephibosheth doesn't talk to his grandchildren and go, let me tell you about the time I ate at the king's table. No way, Grandpa. Yes, I stole some salt shakers to show you. Look at this pull out a fork from the king's table or a salt shaker. No, it says that he what? Continually ate. It went from that first time new experience to an every night experience. He's welcomed continually this kindness to receive with open arms, but notice very carefully, he's welcomed, verse 11, like family. I think if you're familiar with David's life and his beloved friend Jonathan and those promises of chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, David gave Mephibosheth the seat that he promised to his friend Jonathan. As he looked down at the table, he'd maybe see the little side profile of Jonathan and his son. He welcomed his family. If you look throughout Scripture, it appears to me that there are two kinds of people that eat at the king's table. Those that have something to offer the king, the commanders, the generals, 
that informed the king and have earned their seat in a sense. I counsel the king. I give the king's orders power. I put it into effect. But then there's those verse 11. They're there simply because they're family. They're there because it's not just King David. It's dad. And look at how Mephibosheth is welcomed as one of the king's sons. You have Solomon and Absalom and all of these boys that come in fresh from their kingly duties. They just have the aroma of opulence and royalty. They're dressed to the T as princes. And here old lame Mephibosheth drags his body and he sits down right next to one of the sons. Let's eat, boys. He has nothing to offer, nothing to bring, but he is welcomed. Why? Because the king shows him loving kindness. Listen very carefully to this wonderful, wonderful work of loving kindness to receive. The Bible says to you and I in Colossians chapter 21, through or Colossians 1, 21 through 22, this includes you who were once far away from God, the Bible says. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, yet now he has reconciled you through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Do you hear how God has pulled up through his son Jesus a seat at his table? In the Old Testament, in Micah chapter 4, verse 6 through 7, listen to what the Lord says. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcast. And those who I have afflicted, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. The king of all kings specializes in setting table settings at his table for those that were lame, those that were outcast, and welcoming them in as family. If you look at this one kind of last time in a couple of ways, I want you to appreciate something about David as a Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have experienced the loving kindness of God to forgive you of your sins, the loving kindness of God to set a, a seat at his table and welcome you as his son and his daughter and give you all the rights to the kingdom that you know you do not deserve, but he has been a good king to you and he has lavished them upon you. Can you be like David? and share that, and not just talk about it. Here's what I mean. You look at Mephibosheth, and remember that day that he walked for the last time and became lame. It was the day that his dad had died and his grandfather had died. He now see, sits continually at the Lord's table. And Now listen to a, a psalm that David wrote that we all are familiar with. Psalms 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then what does David continue to say? He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
and you anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. And then David writes, surely goodness and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever or continually. This is where our hearts begin to soar because this is what we realize. There is a king greater than David, and his name is Jesus, and he has done a work in his loving kindness to come out and get us who are lame in our sins, to come out and to restore what has been lost as we've rebelled against him, who has come in his death and in his resurrection, he gives you his life and pulls up a seat at his table and listen to what we look forward to. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6, John writes, Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd, of the roar of the mighty oceans, waves, or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to Him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and the bride has prepared herself, and she has been given the finest of pure linen to wear, for the linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are true words that come from God. Because Christ has come, you can hear throughout the generations all of these chairs at God's table being pulled up and sons and daughters are being welcomed and received for eternity because of his loving kindness. Would you bow for a moment of prayer? Father, we come to you in a moment of just thanks, thanking you for your loving kindness towards us. The Lord, there is in this section of Scripture and throughout your word this great wave of your mercy, this great wave of your kindness that crashes in upon our life in which we, having the right to expect nothing, receive everything because of your kindness, because of your Son, Jesus. And so, Lord, as we close in this final time of worship, Father, we ask that you would inhabit the praises of your people, that the, that the affection of our hearts would be stirred up, and that, Lord, we would sing knowing that because of Jesus, you've pulled up a seat at your table. Because of your Son, Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you, Father, have restored us. You've reassured us. And, Lord, you've received us. Father, I also ask as we leave, we would not just leave with a song of praise, but that we would consider the consistency and the faithfulness of David, not just to experience your kindness, not just to write about your kindness, but to live it out and show it to other people, even the outcast and the lame of Mephibosheth. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.